<clears throat> Philippians 3, chapter 3, verse 1 is where we're at tonight, and we'll add a few verses to it. So I'll, I'll start back up in chapter 1, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul's rejoicing. Uh, chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering... Uh, meaning he would be martyred, killed, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way. Share your joy with me. Philippians 2.28, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Philippians 3.1, the verse that we're on tonight. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing, Again, is no trouble to me. It is a safeguard for you. Uh, and so he says, finally, which isn't even close to being the end of the book. Uh, it's kind of the way you've heard preachers say that in some in summary or in closing. And then they go for another 15 minutes. That's what Paul's doing here. Finally, brethren, and then he goes for another whole chapter, another two chapters. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, the the verse that many have memorized Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Number one in your notes, rejoice in the Lord always is a command given to us, not a good suggestion. So if you uh, hear this statement, verse, uh, sentence, wash the dog. And, okay, washing the dog. Wash the dog. Washed, E-D. And so you would recognize that it's different. One is present, one is, uh, I will wash. Uh, future, washed, past, and so we uh, use a verb and we change it uh, to indicate whether it's past, present, future. And so we do that sometimes changing the word, sometimes adding another word. I will wash, wash. Uh, and so we change the word for small number of, of uh, tenses. But the Greek language has double that number of conjugated verbs where that changes. And one of them is what we would call the imperative. So if I say, wash the dog, it could be, would you wash the dog? Would you wash the dog, please? Have you washed the dog? Uh, we can say it all kinds of ways. And so the imperative is simply would be more tone of, wash the dog. I really want to make it emphatic. Wash the dog, stupid. Or maybe... More politely, wash the dog right now. Wash the dog or you don't get dinner. So we would indicate command or imperative by tone of voice and additional words possibly. But the Greek language has uh, prefixes and suffixes that go on the front of and back of every verb to tell you what part of speech. And they have uh, seven different um, uh, things they can communicate by these this conjugation. One of them is imperative, and they can make it 
so that it's very strong imperative. Uh, and so this particular rejoice in the Lord always is in the imperative. It is a clear, obvious, strong command, not a good suggestion. Um, number two in your notes, the command to rejoice is not a command to feel good. We cannot control our feelings or emotions. So if I say to you, uh, the Apostle Paul, rejoice always. Again, I say, in case you didn't get it the first time, rejoice. What am I telling you to do? Exactly. Am I telling you to smile? Am I telling you to laugh? Am I telling you to feel happy? Exactly what is that command telling us to do? It's a good thing to know what it means. And so uh, I'll just tell you, it doesn't mean, and it isn't meaning that we are commanded to feel good. We can't control our emotions. Number three, the command to rejoice does not mean that it is wrong to grieve or to feel sad about certain events. And so I grieved and felt sad with my recent mom's death. And if I didn't, you might think something was wrong. Uh, possibly that I didn't like her. or Maybe she spanked me too many times when I was a kid. And I thought, yeah, God, thank you for taking her. Uh, and, but... I, in fact, you probably heard this story. I grieved twice. Patty took a picture of mom while she was sleeping. And she put it on an email to me. And she wrote a caption under the picture. It says, taken this morning. Well, she meant she took the picture this morning. I read it and thought she was dead. She died this morning. So I see her sleeping in the picture. Oh, man. And so... I went through the whole sad, griefing kind of thing. And so then I called Patty and I said, so when's the service going to be? She says, what are you talking about? I says, for mom. She says, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, she hasn't died yet. What do you mean she hasn't died yet? You just told me this morning she died. No, I didn't. Oh, I mean, she's not dead? No. Okay. So I got it taken care of there. And then when she did die I, a week later, then I had to go through it again. So, was that contrary to the command to rejoice always? I think we would all agree it isn't, but we're not exactly sure how they fit together often. Um, number four, to grieve doesn't mean, uh, to rejoice doesn't mean that I am necessarily enjoying or liking the experience that I'm going through. And so, if we go through a really tough trial and it's not fun, and it's painful, and it's sad, and there's grieving involved, to rejoice doesn't mean we're saying, wow, I'm having such a good time. Uh, you, you would have to be uh, lying in order to say that. And to rejoice doesn't mean that we act a certain way, that we don't feel, that we uh, behave a certain way, and we pretend things are the way they are. And so I cannot like... In fact, hate very much an experience and a trial uh, and still rejoice. Number five, to rejoice doesn't mean that I am necessarily smiling and laughing. <clears throat> so it doesn't mean that I'm feeling happy. It doesn't mean that I'm acting happy. It doesn't mean that I'm not feeling sad. It doesn't mean that I like what I'm going through. It doesn't mean that I'm acting, smiling, uh, like everything is cool, so what exactly what does it mean? Number six, our best model 
of rejoicing is Jesus as he faced the cross and while he was being crucified. So the command is to rejoice always, and we can ask the question, did Jesus obey this command? Well, I would hardly think that there would be a command in the Bible that he wouldn't obey. He wouldn't ask us to do something that he didn't do. Uh, He was a perfect model, perfect example for us in every arena of life. And so when he is facing the cross and is being crucified, and if he rejoices always, how did he do that? Uh, What did it look like? And how will we model it? If you were here last, uh, this last week, I talked about what Jesus did when he died for us. And there was the, uh, the aspect of leaving heaven, emptying himself of all that he was as God. And the cost that was, that's a long distance that we can't comprehend. And then while he lived this life, he lived the life of a, a poor person and he was Uh, harassed and ridiculed continually. And then when he hung on the cross, he was tortured beyond comprehension with a death invented by the Romans to totally, uh, probably in the history of mankind, no one has ever invented a form of punishing somebody while they died as much as the Romans did with uh, with crucifixion. And then while he hung there, God took my sin, your sins, and put on Jesus, and he became our sin. He felt the pain and the guilt and the shame of our sin. He felt it all. And then God turned his back on Jesus, and the oneness of the, of the Trinity was broken, torn apart. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when he died, he went to hell, and he spent three days there. Uh, experiencing the full wrath of God. If you read Psalms 88, you can read the description of that experience that he had. Uh, It says, wave after wave of your um, wrath came upon me. And uh, so, how did Jesus rejoice in that? Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus... That means he's our model. He knows how to do everything that we need to do. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, think about him, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So if we talk about rejoice, who for the joy set before him. And so it was before him. And did Jesus understand what his death was doing? Did he understand what his torture was accomplishing? Did he understand what taking my sin upon himself was going to result in? Sure he did. He understood it exactly. That the result of what he did would be us living with him forever and ever. And that's why he did it, because he loved us and he wanted us to be with him for all eternity. For the joy set before him, that is the result of his torture, the result of his pain, the result was worth rejoicing about, being glad about. And so it wasn't a, oh, wow, I'm having such a great time. It was just recognizing the the purpose, the reason for what he was doing. 
And recognizing that purpose and reason was so exalted and so important to him that there was a joy in it, though he didn't feel good and he didn't act happy. But inside, in his heart, he knew exactly what he was doing and what the, what the results would be. Uh, did I give you that number seven? Yeah. Number seven. Jesus knew the end of the story. So he focused on that instead of the immediate pain. He didn't re rejoice in the experience. He rejoiced in the results. And it was um, mental more than it was emotional. It was mental more than physical. It was an acknowledgement in his own mind and heart that the results would be that he would have many, many sons and daughters living with him for all eternity because he had paid the price of their sin. And understanding and knowing that, then there was this joy inside of him because of that. Let me read it to you again. Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, for the joy set before him, what it's about, he endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you... That's me, us, will not grow weary and lose heart. Number eight, we grieve and feel sad, but not the way the world does, because we know the end of the story as well. <clears throat> the end of the story is I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to live there forever, and I get a new body, and when I get there, my mom will be there, my dad will be there, a whole lot of other people that I've known in my life will be there that I was close to that made it there before I did. I was talking with a pastor friend this week, and uh, he's retired now, uh, interim work, but he was when he was pastoring. We went to uh, Corbin together, Western Baptist Bible College, and have been good friends over the years, and uh, he came this last week, and several other, and we had that lunch together and kind of talked about the old days. And afterwards, uh, we were emailing back and forth a couple of times, and he says, I am so blessed by what God has done f through your life. And I emailed back, I said, I am so thankful that you proved to be such a great uh, friend and model and encouragement to me, especially in the early, early years of ministry. I hope when I get to heaven, I'm close to where you are. He says, I'm probably going to die before you are, so I'll save you a condo. <laughs> and uh, so we can talk about death uh, with no fear because we know where we're going. I was talking to an individual that is absolutely paranoid about this coronavirus. They just can't hardly sleep because of it. But they're not a believer. And so... Fear of death is a very real fear. What after death? So let's just postpone it as long as we can. We don't know what's happening, so let's just... And so news of cancer, coronavirus, all of that puts them in great dread. And I said, eh, no big deal. Sooner the better. I got my condo waiting for me. My new body is there. First Thessalonians four thirteen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep that is, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest. So we grieve, though we don't grieve like the world does. We don't grieve as the rest who have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died, rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Did I tell you that uh, Jesus is, we're going to get raptured on my 80th birthday? Just a guess, not a prophecy. Uh, the reason I said that is because I was born in 1948, the same year Israel was born as a nation. And one of the verses says, this nation, uh, this generation will not pass away. Uh, and so some places, uh, different years are given, but one is that 80 years is a, a length of a generation. So 48 I'm 48. I was born in 48. When I'm 80, that will Israel will be 80, and I, maybe I don't know, just a guess. But if it happens, you heard it here first, okay? Um, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait. Eagerly wait, that means we're anticipating, looking forward to it, not dreading death. Uh, anticipating, looking forward to it, wait for it, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state. You know what that means? That means it's bald, ugly, fat, weak, frail, sick, cancer, coronavirus, the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That is, we're going to get a body just like Jesus. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And so Jim McKean is going to have hair. Worth rejoicing about. Romans 8.23, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan. That doesn't sound like rejoicing to me. That's Paul talking. We groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly we eagerly wait for it. Philippians one twenty two. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Evidently, God asked Paul. If he wanted to stick around for a while or leave, I wish he'd ask me. <laughs> Number nine, the command rejoice in the Lord can be understood to mean rejoice to the Lord. So if I were to ask you the question, rejoice in the Lord, always rejoice in the Lord. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Um, in the context of the Lord or just a way of understanding, it would be rejoicing to the Lord. Um, in other words, the attitude that I have is the attitude I have towards him. And it will show up to you, but I'm not rejoicing uh, to you. This is a command that he gave me in my relationship with him. Rejoicing is an attitude towards God. It's an attitude towards God of trusting him and submitting to him. 
And again, Jesus is our model on how to do this. So, if you've been listening to Pastor Mike's preaching through the book of Job, one of the things that's clear there is Job doesn't know why he is suffering. And he asks the question repeatedly. I think 11 times in the book of Job, he says, why? 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 And God never answers the question, even when he appears to him. Job doesn't know about this deal between Satan and God, the conversation they had. He, I, he's not gonna know, he didn't know about it until he got there. Um, and so God never, never did tell him that part of the story. He didn't answer the question why, never did. So, to rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord, to the Lord, means I trust you and I don't need to know why. I don't need to know why. I simply trust you and I submit to you as the one in charge of my life. And so, again, Jesus is our model. Matthew twenty six thirty seven. He took him, Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, began to be grieved and distressed. Grieved and distressed. So that is permissible even though you're rejoicing. He grieved and was distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. Why? Because he knew what was coming. He knew the fellowship, the unity, the oneness between he and the Father was going to be broken. He knew that he was going to take the sins of every person upon himself. Holy, righteous God who had never once sinned was going to become the sin of every person. And he was going to feel the guilt and the shame of that. He was going to go through the torture of a crucifixion. And then he was going to spend three days in hell separated from the Father experiencing the full wrath of God against himself. He knew all of that. And so he's there deeply grieved over what is coming. He's grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them, fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So rejoice to the Lord in an attitude towards him would be to say, I trust you, and I don't need to know why, and I submit to you as my heavenly father, as the controller of my life, as the one who knows best what I need. And so though you may be grieving, may, though you may be hurting, though you may not be the happiest person on the planet Earth, you're rejoicing because you're trusting. You're rejoicing because you're submitting. You're rejoicing because your attitude towards God is right. And so rejoicing doesn't mean that we're hilariously happy or smiling. Um, it means that we are content, as it were, and trusting and submitting to God as our Father. Number 10, even though life at times may be very hard and full of trials, those who are rejoicing always will call on God for the strength to manage the pain. So to rejoice always in the Lord is not possible without his strength. That's not something that you can do of your own willpower without him granting you what you need to be able to pull it off. And so one of the basic principles of God's word is that when you are trusting him and submitting to him and ask him for the strength to do that, he loves to give it to you. He loves to give it to you. Here's a great story. In the, in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, 
David is still uh, running from Saul, who's trying to kill him. And he has gathered a band of, of men around him who all are, it's sort of like Robin Hood and his merry men. Uh, all those who came to David were outlaws. Uh, they'd gotten in trouble with the king, and uh, they were running for their life. And so they all get together, David and his, his mighty men. And so they're in a city called Ziklag. It says, Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. They'd been off that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire, burned it all down. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, carried them off and went their way. So David and his men come to the city. Behold, it's burned with fire. Their wives and their sons and their daughters have been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Um, that's not a pretty good uh, good news. The city, their homes are all burned and their wives are gone and their children are gone and everything they own is gone. Now David, two wives had been taken captive. Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. These are his mighty men that have been with him, and they're upset, and so they oh, this is David's fault. They stone him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. And here's a cool line, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I wonder how long that took. And I wonder what he did. Did you know you can read the prayer that he prayed in the Psalms? I'd read it to you, but I'll just give you this assignment. Find it. A prayer for strength in light of all the grief that they're going through. And so now comes the John Wayne part. This would be a great movie. You know, John Wayne rescuing all the people that got kidnapped. Uh, Verse 18 and 19. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. I'm skipping some verses there. You don't see in between all the strategy. He recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, rescued his two wives, but nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken from for themselves. David brought it all back. Think, wow, that is an exploit, an accomplishment. Uh, this is talking about... Uh, Thousands of people that were kidnapped, taken away, and all their goods. And David and his men take out after them and capture everything back. Get it all back. Um, I don't know why nobody has made a movie out of that. That would be such a cool movie. Number 11, a major part of our attitude of rejoicing is to always recognize that God is working at molding our character. Molding our character to be like that of Jesus and trials are the main tool that he uses to do that. So, Jesus, for the joy set before him. So, when you go through difficulty, the rejoicing is not, Wow, I'm having such a cool time. Life is great. Too bad you don't get to have the fun I'm having. It's... For the joy set before me, that would be 
God has a purpose, and the key purpose is he's making me like Jesus in character. Making me like Jesus in character. So, by the way, if you tend to think, uh, like many think, that as soon as you die, you get fixed. That is, boom, your character is made like Jesus the moment you enter heaven. Well, you're not going to rejoice in trials for character development. Just, just wait a little bit and you'll have it anyway. So let's just take it easy. Romans 5, 3 through 4, not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing, knowing, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and proven, uh, perseverance, proven character and proven character hope. Character. We exult in our tribulations. That doesn't mean that we're having a, a happy old time, but we, for the joy set before us, that is, I'm becoming like Jesus in character. That's the plan of God. James says the same thing, chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Consider it all joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete. That is, your character is like that of Christ. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You are fully grown up, fully developed, like Jesus in character. So you rejoice knowing this is what's happening. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him for whom were all things and through whom were all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect, that's the same word that James uses, to perfect the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, through sufferings. So Jesus needed to grow in character and God the Father sovereignly used suffering to do that. And so if Jesus needed to suffer to grow in character, who are we? To think it will happen any other way but through sufferings. Hebrews 5, 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. Learned obedience. Jesus had to learn obedience, submission to the Father. From the things which he suffered and having been made perfect, perfect, complete, grown up, character, fully developed, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are potter and all of us are the work of your hand. You're shaping, molding us into the image of Christ, and you use trials to do that. Number 12, who and what we are in character when we enter glory is who and what we are forever. So if we fully believe that statement, we would have such a, a much easier time considering it all joy when we encounter trials. Our character is incredibly important when we get there. The more like Jesus we are when we get there, the more he will enjoy us, the more we will enjoy him. I might simply put it this way. The more we'll enjoy heaven, there will be levels of joy uh, based on our character. We will enjoy him. He will enjoy us. We will enjoy the experience. We will enjoy everything about heaven considerably more than the person who is has the character of a baby. Psalms chapter 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days. That is, make the most of our time. Why? That we may present to you a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom. The word wisdom is often used uh, as a uh, synonym for character. 
that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. 13, another key aspect of our attitude of rejoicing is knowing that the more we suffer well, the more usable we are for God in this life, the more fruit we will bear. So everything in life is about two things. Becoming like Christ in character and bearing much fruit. There's nothing else that matters really. Those two things are are everything. Becoming like him in character and bearing much fruit. And so I want to bear much fruit. And one of the key principles in scripture is that suffering is a key part of that. Philippians 1.12 Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And he was in prison. And he was beaten. And he was whipped. And he was scourged. And he was stoned and left for dead. And he says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The greater progress of the gospel. That is, more people are becoming believers. John chapter 12, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, when Jesus says that, truly, truly, what does that mean? This is really important. Uh, Here's another assignment. Go through the Gospels and see how many times he says that. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Bears much fruit. That's what we are supposed to do. If we bear much fruit, we glorify the Father and prove to be his disciples. Bear much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it the life eternal. So... What does that mean about me? Grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies. It bears much fruit. But if it doesn't, then it doesn't bear any fruit. Um, And so we die to self. We lose our life. It basically means I'm not important here. What's important are all those people that don't know Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.11 According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted the gospel which I have been entrusted, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful. Putting me into service, putting me into service, that means there's a whole lot of people that aren't in service, that don't get anything to do that matters in this life. We don't do anything for Jesus unless he gives it to us to do, unless he assigns it to us, unless he opens up the door, and we always are worthy of that before we get it. And so you're on the bench or you're in the game. And there is nothing that determines uh, whether we're in the game or on the bench as much as how we deal with trials. We don't have to laugh and smile, but we do have to have an attitude towards God of trusting and submitting First Thessalonians 2, 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. But just as we have been approved by God, approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So here's a good question. Have you been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel? And if you've never led anybody to Jesus, maybe it's because you haven't been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. What's it take to be approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel? Uh, There are several verses that tell us the answer to that. One of them is, is our attitude towards God of submission and trusting and demonstrating that when we go through hard times. 
Number 14, those who rejoice in the Lord always, even though they may be going through tough times and may be grieving and sad, still think of others first and treat them with honor and self-control. So my rejoicing is to God, but it it is my behavior is impacted. It doesn't mean that I, wow, I'm having such a good time. I'm so, oh, too bad you're not blessed like I'm blessed. But it does mean that we treat people. Grumpy old men are not part of the equation. Um, and you can't use the excuse, well, I had a bad day at work. Or this or that or whatever other reason you might have. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's already uttered the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's been tortured incomprehensibly. And then while he hangs there, John 19, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So what was Jesus doing? He was thinking about his mom and her future, and her care. You might think, why would he do that after everything he's going through? It seemed like that would be sort of an aside. Let her take care of that all by herself. So even though he was experiencing suffering and pain that we will never even come close to, while he hung there, he considered his mom and he took care of her future. And so when we are going through tough times, that means that we are trusting God, submitting to God, we're understanding what it's about. And so we rejoice not in the experience, we rejoice in the results. My character is becoming like Jesus, and I I now have the potential to bear much fruit. And then as I live life, I'm always putting people first, treating them with honor, dignity, and respect in spite of the way I feel, in spite of what I'm going through. And we're always calling on him for the strength to do that. And God loves to give strength to those who have as their purpose to glorify him by the way they live their life. So I can do that. I can rejoice always in the Lord, to the Lord, with an attitude towards him. And you can as well. And so I want to be in the game, and I want to become like him in character, as much like him as is possible. And I want to earn a ton of rewards that I receive at the judgment seat of Christ, all of which are impossible outside of suffering. It's the price that we pay. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for granting us the strength. It's uh, difficult to say, Lord, whatever you want to bring into my life, no matter how difficult or how hard or how painful it might be, I accept. I submit, I trust. Um, Lord, we can't do that without your strength. And so I pray that we would be those who quickly call on you for strength and we would do what David did, strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And uh, you love to give your strength to those who desire to please you and to serve you and to trust you and to submit to you, to those who are anxious to grow in character, to those who are anxious to bear much fruit for the glory of God. And so, Lord, I pray that we would live our life well. Uh, we would live it like you, Jesus, lived your life. And for the joy set before us, That joy is when we see you, when we get a new body, when we're blessed with great rewards of the judgment seat of Christ, and when we recognize we're like you in character, and we will enjoy you and you us 
And many people will be there because of the life we've lived and the fruit we've borne. Because we, like a grain of wheat, fell to the ground and suffered and didn't grumble. Use us for your glory. We do trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.